0: seated it is uh, so incredibly good to see many of you here and for cactus campus and northridge welcome and then certainly to so many of you that are joining us online uh it's been a just a, such a strange time as, as many of us know Uh, You know, as I've been reading a bit over the summer, you know, our culture, American culture, has not gone through something like this, a a pandemic, for uh, over 100 years, uh, really. And so, you know, I can't thank you guys enough Uh, for your patience and for your encouragement, your support, your love. As we talk about unity, this is not to get down on any of us, just so you know, this is to thank you and to continue to rally the church together as we now start to gather physically again and just again, pray like crazy that God continues to open things up and keep us all safe as we gather together uh, as the church. it's a special feeling in the room here right now as you guys sing and worship. And you need to know that your pastors and your elders have been longing like crazy Uh, for our times of of regathering and for the rest of you still at home we can't wait to again increasingly have us all together so with that said uh, let me uh, spare no more introduction because I want to pray right now I got a lot to share with you uh, from the word that I think will both be encouraging and challenging as we spend a couple of weeks exploring this idea of unity so let's all bow together right now and enter into this holy time in God's word Father, as you know, this whole summer as I've been writing and studying and preparing for the year ahead, uh, I'm thankful for quite a few things, but three most importantly. First, for Jesus and, and for the Savior that we have, the Savior that we share, the Savior you provided in your Son who, as we are gonna see today, is our bond of peace, is our unity as we rally around him. Lord, secondly, I'm so grateful for your word And that you have not left us alone to wondering in our own minds about who you are and and how we need to make sense of this life. But you've given us your revelation, uh, Lord, for uh, understanding you in your word. And and Father, I'm thankful, thirdly, for the community of faith. For Northridge, for Cactus, for Chapel, for those uh, here in the worship center with venue. I thank you, God. Especially even for those online. for, For the fact that we're one body in Christ. And as we're going to see today, that love can blow through any type of conflict or disunity that Satan might bring our way. And so, Father, I pray that as we enter into a time now of unpacking uh, what your word says, may we understand it rightly, and Lord, may we apply it diligently and fearlessly to our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I don't know if you have noticed or not, but there's a pandemic going on in our world. And some people think it's overhyped and overemphasized, while others think that it's just as bad as the news tells us. Some Some people think that masks are ridiculous, and others think it's ridiculous not to wear one. Some think that churches should gather physically no matter what, just enough of this and gather, while others think that there is great risk in gathering in large groups and that you could possibly increase community transmission of the virus. There's a lot of diversity and even conflict going on out there over this pandemic. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's still racial concern and tension in our land. And some people think the riots are appropriate and justified, while others think that law and order need to be emphasized. Some think that the church should be front and center in leading the way in trying to bring racial justice within the secular realm, while others think that's not our job. There's a lot of differences of opinion and even conflict over how to respond to the cry for racial justice in our land. And I don't know if you have noticed or not, but there's a national election coming up in just a few months. And I don't even wanna go there right now because the amount of inbred conflict that that's gonna bring to our already conflicted society, most of us know, is great. Truly, folks, we all know this, we all feel this. There's an awful lot of tension and conflict in our culture at this time. A once in a lifetime pandemic, racial tension, and the cry for justice, and a rather pivotal election in just a few months. A lot of conflicts swirling around out there. And it would be one thing if it was all simply happening out there, but you and I know different. It's also happening in here. Uh, the tensions that our society is wrapped up in have greatly infiltrated the church. Have you noticed that? And this creates not just discussions and even robust debates, but it also creates great conflict and even division within our ranks. Uh, LifeWay Research has been tracking a lot of stuff going on with churches uh, throughout the pandemic, and they have done regular polling, and they've done a great job with this. And just a few weeks ago, at the end of July, a couple weeks ago, uh, they came out with a survey, an exhaustive survey, of how church people and pastors are doing in the midst of all of this conflict in our society. And toward the tail end of this survey, they, they listed the top pressure points mentioned by pastors. Are you interested in this? Uh, Things that pastors are themselves feeling from the congregation as as pressure points in their lives. Number two was how to provide pastoral care from a distance. That would make sense. How how do I care for you guys? How do we care for you uh, when we're supposed to be socially distant? Number three was the safety and well-being of our members. How are you guys doing in all of this? Uh, number four was feeling personally exhausted, stressed, and isolated ourselves. Number five made sense, uncertainty when it comes to wisdom and strategy and direction for the future. These are all tension points for pastors you're saying, what's number one? Uh, Number one, far outpacing all of them, was how to maintain unity amidst all the conflict and complaints. I know it's hard to picture a Christian complaining, but just go with me on this. Uh, There's been an awful lot of conflict and complaints going on in the church, and, and it's very, very stressful for pastors. In fact, some of you say, well, what are some of the complaints? Well, here are some of the things they said during this survey One pastor said, different political opinions on both sides elevated to the point of doctrine. Another guy said, I'm aware that people are growing weary of the entire pandemic. Some are scared to death while others are convinced it's a hoax. Trying to minister to both ends of the spectrum is exhausting you see there's a lot of conflict and pressure and even disunity going on right now in our culture and it's threatening the church and so if ever there was a time neil said it earlier in this room if ever there was a time for a cogent biblical discussion on unity complete with where and how our unity is found as well as what specific ways is our unity be expressed now is it and for here is what we all need to realize today more than anything else. I'm going to upstream where we're going right now when it comes to our look today at unity. And I hope you all are in agreement on this with me. If not, just hang in there for the next half hour you will be. Our unity is not found in masks. Amen. It's not found in your opinion of masks or your opinion of this virus. I'm not here to change you at all in that. I'm just here to tell you that no matter what your opinion are of these silly little things, our unity is not found there. Our unity is not found in the color of our skin. Amen? Whether you are black, brown, white, red, yellow, it does not matter. God made us all equal and the same. And our unity is not found there, even though this is a very important issue. And the cry for justice is an important issue. But our unity is not found there. This is going to throw some of you. Our unity is not found in our nationalism. You might feel very strongly about values of America, as I do. You might even be proud to be an American, as I am. But I'm here to tell you today, and the Bible's going to underline this, that as followers of Jesus, our unity is not found here. Now, don't get me wrong. I think our opinion on the coronavirus matters. I think the cry for racial justice is important. I think that this upcoming election is pivotal and the values that you and I bring into it matter. But our unity is not found in those things. Our unity we're going to learn today is found in a cross. Amen. Our unity is found, you can clap at that, in a person in a man, and his name is Jesus. And we're going to talk about why that is true today and how our unity is found in him. Our unity is found, likewise, in a book. It's called the Bible. Our unity is not found in the AZ Republic, Fox News, or the New York Times. It's found in this book and what it says about our spiritual lives. And our unity is going to be found in... In our love for each other. This is a picture of Tom Schrader who's been dead now for two years and the reason I use Tom as a prop here is because Tom and I were so close. He was one of my best friends and yet we were so different. We were the most unlikely of companions. He was not a car guy. I don't know how he could be a man and not be a car guy but he wasn't. (laughs) He, he didn't like to read very much or study. He, 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 we did everything different. We used to call ourselves the odd couple, like I was Felix and he was Oscar. And yet we were the closest of friends. Why? Because we loved each other. And as you're going to learn today, love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, our unity is going to be found in places different than what our culture right now is into And so in our time remaining today, we've got just about a half an hour, I want to explore very briefly these three critical areas in which God says, now don't miss this, that our unity is both to be fought for and won within. It's a fight we're in. We need to fight for unity in the right places, jettison those other places as important as they might be, and find our unity to show the world what the kingdom is really like. Three things I want to explore with you today that have nothing to do with masks, skin color, or flags, but have everything to do with where and how our unity is to be found. I'm calling these the extent of our unity. I thought long and hard about that this summer. This is the guardrails of our unity. This is as far as our unity should go. We should not add things to these things or take away from them. These are the extent of our unity. And first and foremost, our unity is to be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's what the Bible says in a very clear passage that goes right for the spiritual jugular when it comes to the extent of our unity. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 14. And we read it earlier in our video. It's our theme verse for this week and next week. And here's what it says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh The dividing wall of hostility. I want you to focus on these highlighted portions as I do so often when I teach the Bible, because they contain kind of the handles we need to grab onto to understand what God is saying to us here. Notice first that it says, He Himself. Obviously and contextually referring to Jesus, you can read the context later, trust me, it's Jesus. He Himself is the source of our unity. It's interesting phraseology. You don't want to miss this. He himself. Or I like how the New International Version says it, he himself. Or the New American Standard Bible says it, he himself. Or the New King James Version says it this way. Why don't you just say it with me? He himself. He himself is our peace and the source and bond of our unity. You see, that phrase, he himself, points to the being and personhood of Jesus. It points to the substance of a person, he himself, with nothing to be added and nothing to be taken away. So here's a great example. If I were to say to you personally today, at Cactus Northridge Chapel, those of you watching at home, if I was to say to you today, I myself am coming over to your house today to cook dinner for you, you would know what I mean by that. It means that I'm not sending Neil over to cook dinner for you. I'm not gonna be ordering Uber Eats to be sent to your house for dinner. No, you would interpret that to mean rightly that I, Jamie Rasmussen, am coming over to your house, not with a group of people, but I myself, to cook dinner for you. That's how you would understand that, rightly so. And so when it says about Jesus that he himself is our peace. <laughs> Interpret what that means. Jesus is the source of our unity. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is what binds us together. And, and notice that I said, go back to the main point here, if I could, or the, to point one. Uh, notice that I'm telling us here, or saying here, that the person and work of Jesus, that's important. You know, sometimes when I meet people out there, on a trip or whatever, and they, they tell me, oh, I, I like Jesus, or or I believe in Jesus, and then I start to quiz them a little bit about the Jesus they believe in. Has this ever happened to you? I go, I don't, I don't think we, we understand the same Jesus. Because <laughs> they'll tell me things about Jesus that aren't in the Bible, or, or gross misunderstanding of the Bible. So when I say to you that our bond is in Jesus, I'm talking about the person of Jesus. Now watch this, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, God come to this earth and the work of Jesus, meaning to secure our forgiveness through his atonement for our sin on the cross. That's the Jesus that we're talking about that binds us together. That's the Jesus of the Bible, which are the only historical records that we have of him. And the point is, as we agree upon the biblical and historical Jesus, he himself, the Bible says, becomes the extent of our unity. And then very quickly, because we're going to be looking at this passage this week and next week, uh, notice the second half of this verse and how it tells us precisely what Jesus has done to bring about our unity. Go back to the verse here. It says that he himself is our peace, who has made us both, meaning both groups, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. But what does it mean when it says he has made both groups, both types of people, one? Some of you, because you're news watchers and all that, you know, bemoan all the conflict that I mentioned earlier going on in our culture today, and it is bad, and it's not good, and we need to be very careful with it. Uh, but, but history has shown us that there have been times in history that have made the conflict we're experiencing today a walk in the park. And guess what? The New Testament had a, a level of conflict that you and I have known nothing about. Uh, when these words were written by Paul the Apostle, and, and shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven... They had two main groups living in Palestine or the Holy Land at that time, the Jews, and then the Gentiles that were basically at that time, the Greco Roman empire, the Greeks and the Romans. And you need to know that these groups were at massive enmity with each other on a racial level, on a religious level, on a cultural level, you name it, all levels Jews and Greeks did not get along they did not like each other they had very little in common save for their shared humanity and so there was constant enmity you even read about it in the book of Acts between the Jewish widows and the Hellenistic widows and even the conflict that infiltrated the church then there was constant enmity between these two groups And we're going to explore this a little bit more next week on how they had to find and express their unity together on multiple levels. But don't miss today that what Paul the Apostle is saying here is that when we latch on to Jesus... And have a shared faith, a shared understanding, a shared rallying point in him alone that has the power to make us one, to break down in his flesh, in his personhood, the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, it is through Jesus that he brings two very disparate groups together in the New Testament with extremely diverse cultures, values, histories, religious journeys, you name it, and he breaks it all down and says, in me, you are one. A shared faith in Jesus can accomplish all of this. A shared faith in Jesus, and it sounds so silly just saying it this way, can blow through masks, amen? A shared faith in Jesus can blow through racial differences and even our responses to this. A shared faith in Jesus can blow through the level of nationalism some of us have or some of us don't. Those things matter, but what matters even more is Jesus, And I know how some of you think that you might be thinking right now, if you could push back with me, and you can, you're thinking, oh, come on, Jamie, it can't be that easy. I mean, the divisions we have today are real and complex. You mentioned them earlier, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You can't be suggesting, Jamie, that a shared faith in Jesus can adequately just overcome these things, blow right through them, and unite us despite all of our diversity. (laughs) I'm so glad you asked that, because here's the deal. Not only am I suggesting it, I am categorically stating it. I'm here to tell you today, and my backdrop is the Word of God, that this is not overly simplistic thinking. It is not Pollyanna. This is rugged biblical truth that has worked for thousands of years when God's people have the courage to embrace this, that Jesus is enough to unite us, if we will put aside our differences, start loving each other as God wants us to, amen, and find our unity in him. Uh, A quick story that will will date me, uh, Rustin teased me this week as we're talking about, next week we're going to talk about intergenerational ministry, and and I gave them some examples from the 80s, and he said, hey, yeah, uh, nothing pulls together people more than your old stories from the 80s. But anyways... (laughs) I have one old story from the 80s. that Those of you at the chapel, you're going to really love this, and uh, and, and as you remember these days. uh, Part of getting older is that you experience things like we're experiencing in culture right now, and though they're different from what's happened before, part of you goes, been there, done that. And that's just part of what happens as you get older. When I first got saved in 1981, there was a lot of conflict in culture at that time. On a political level, Jimmy Carter had just been our president, and he declared himself a born-again Christian. And in many people's minds, a Democrat couldn't be a born-again Christian. And so that created a lot of conflict at that time of how could Jimmy Carter be born again, but he legitimately was born again and, and, and be a Democrat president. And then Reagan became president. You know, Reagan had kind of a, a, a you know, goofy history himself, but he was very friendly with evangelicals and, and, and most likely a Christian himself and all this. And, and, and that created a lot of conflict there because some people weren't into Reaganomics. And on a political level, it was just kind of a, a, a real messy time. And then on a a cultural level, there was a lot going on that that infiltrated the church. Like right now, today we seem to be pretty unified with other churches. Like you look at CCV or you know the big Pentecostal church here in town, and we're like, hey, there are brothers and sisters. Back then, it wasn't that way. Some of you remember this. Back then, when I first got saved, I was told, be aware of Pentecostals and Charismatics. John MacArthur had written a book called Charismatic Chaos, and I was told that that stuff is borderline of the devil, and you need to be careful of that stuff and just sort of stay in this lane, don't go into this lane, and if you see him, be nice, but kind of walk the other way. I was told that. And then we haven't even gotten to end times yet. Hal Lindsay had written that famous book in the 70s, Late Great Planet Earth, and churches actually wrote in their statements of faith that if you're not pre-mill and pre-trib, you can't be a member of our church. And I haven't even gotten to music yet. When I got saved, that was right when the whole Christian rock thing was starting to come into play and hymns were mainly sung in churches, but some of us young people said, hey, you know, this Christian music's pretty good. And they were like, get back, you know, and and, and they're going to bring that into church. And there was all this division. And here's my point in telling you that, is that I was a dumb, naive, biblically illiterate, but on fire for Jesus, brand new Christian. And all I know is that when I ran into Pentecostals, I loved them. When I ran into people that liked hymns and that were older than me, I loved them. And when I ran into somebody that thought Jimmy Carter was wonderful, even though they're all wet, I loved them. In other words, when I ran into anybody that loved Jesus the way I loved Jesus, I had an immediate unity with them. Russ Taft was one of the Early Christian singers, he toured with the Gaither Band and and the Imperials back in the day, and he wrote a song back when I first got saved called, We Will Stand. I want you to listen to what he says in the song, because it kind of sums up my attitude over the years. He says, sometimes it's hard for me to understand why we pull away from each other so easily. Even though we're all walking the same road, yet we build dividing walls between our brothers and ourselves. But I don't care what label you may wear. If you believe in Jesus, you belong with me. The bond we share is all I care to see. Rust have. You see, here's my point. If a newly minted Christian in the early 1980s who was raised in an incredibly secular environment and now is in love with Jesus, barely knows the Bible, can do this unity thing across charismatic lines, political lines, music lines, you name it, then my guess is we can do this today. Amen? My guess is today we cannot allow our view of the coronavirus or racial justice issues, which are very important, or even this upcoming election, to dare divide us as followers of Jesus. Because our unity is not found in what Fox News says. As good as that might be in helping you understand the world or CNN or wherever you get your news. Our unity is not found within the political realm, the national realm, the cultural realm. Our unity is found not even in the religious realm. It's found in Jesus, in a person first and foremost. And if you and I will do this, there's nothing that can get between us or stop us. Now, before we wrap this up, let me share with you two other ways that the Bible says that we can find our unity, that God and Jesus affirm that our unity also needs to be found in or help guide us in our unity. And the second way is what we're gonna call the Bible, and this is really important, some of you are gonna smile at this because you know where I'm going with this, when reasonably interpreted. I almost said when rightly interpreted, but that would give some of you too much ammunition. So what I said, and I thought about this long and hard, is that the Bible is a source of unity for you and me when reasonably interpreted. Let me briefly explain. First, let me show you how the psalmist put this. I love this. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 119, verse 105. Amy Grant, years ago, wrote a, a, a song called Thy Word. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. Or, I'm sorry, Thy Word is a lamp unto me and a light unto my path. Here's what Psalm, 105, or Psalm 119, 105 says. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Same author. Look at what he says in verse 63 on the same lines. He says, and I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. So he's affirming there the power of God's word to be a light to guide us on the dark path. And then he says, and I have fellowship, I have unity. They are my companions who fear God and keep his word. I love that word companion. It kind of conjures up an image of journeying through rough terrain together, right? Kind of like that, that movie, The Lord of the Rings, in the very first of the trilogy, where he had Frodo and Samwise Gamgee and then his companions and how they went through all their adventures but stayed together in unity. That's what the Bible says, that the Bible itself is a source of unity as we allow it to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And the only challenge that I will give you, and I put this in parentheses here, is that the Bible becomes a source of unity, now don't miss this, when reasonably interpreted. In other words, we all know people who have taken this book and they've picked out one passage or even one side doctrine. You ever seen this? And they have blown it up so big and made this thing such a big deal and made that either a rallying point or a dividing point. So so we might do that with something like modes of baptism or a particular view of the end times or something like that, some non-salvific issue or even worse, our particular view of a particular passage that is historically debatable because it's not always easy to understand this book and instead of being humble and say, well, that's kind of a side issue, or maybe I just don't understand that passage rightly and I'm not seeing it, we dig our heels in and we use the Bible as almost a wedge to divide Christians. And that's why I say, let's reasonably interpret this book. You know, we have a, a way to interpret it that evangelicals have used for 2,000 years called a historical grammatical approach to the Bible. Meaning that we read it in its historical context, using the laws of grammar to understand it. We call it some of you have heard this is called a literal view to reading the Bible. You just take it face value for what it says in its historical grammatical context. And here's the point, when you read the Bible that way, there's a lot of unity to be found with other believers. I made a list this week of some things that, that you and I rally around with with believers of all stripes when we read the Bible this way. We read the Bible and realize that God is real, that He is a perfect and powerful combination of holiness and grace. We realize that He loves us all and He wants us to be like Him. We realize that sin is also real and makes a mess of everything. We realize that Jesus came to redeem us of our sin through His death on a cross for our sins. We then realize that faith is a very critical pathway, the pathway. To experiencing Jesus and his forgiveness. We realize then that God wants Saul to follow and grow in his grace and, and, and in our love for each other and our faith and in our holiness. And we realize that the kingdom matters more than anything. Remember Jesus's famous prayer we looked at last spring? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that God expresses his kingdom through his church. I made a distinction years ago, when i taught you guys this, between what I call FBI's and non-FBIs. An FBI is a fellowship-breaking issue. And a non-FBI is a non-fellowship-breaking issue. When you read and interpret the Bible reasonably, in all the big picture things it says that are so important about who God is, you develop an FBI and non-FBI list And you know, if somebody says that God does not exist or that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or the Bible's not the word of God or that sin is not real, those are pretty big issues. You're denying the very essence of the word of God. But when over here, somebody might disagree with me, or, or as I got this summer, people sent me you know, uh, proof texts on why I should be doing this and why I shouldn't be doing this. And it's funny, you're sending a guy, and I don't mean to be arrogant here, I know it's going to sound arrogant, but you're sending a guy who's been doing this for 30 plus years, who has an earned master's degree in theology, and you're giving him a proof text as if somehow I don't know that, or that I haven't looked at that passage. And again, you're welcome to your opinion, as wrong as it is, on that particular passage. But the reality is, is that even if you and I don't agree on this, we agree over here. And it's over here that we find our unity. Can you do that, church? I think you can. And, and, and it's how and why the Bible then becomes a source of our unity, So, as far as the extent of our unity goes, we have the person and work of Jesus, amen. We have the Bible when reasonably interpreted. And then finally, but don't dismiss this one, we have Christ-like love for one another. I say don't dismiss this because it's very easy for some of you to do. You go, yeah, 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 we love each other. Look at how Jesus says this in John 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I wanna point out something here that's rather technical but really important that I haven't showed you before. I've showed you before that three times, thrice repeated, Jesus says, love one another. So he's obviously trying to make a point. You need to love each other. What I haven't pointed out to this before is that when he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Watch this. It's a plural you he's talking about. So he doesn't mean you individually, Richard, because you can't individually love another person without being without other person, right? I mean, it takes two to love. It takes two to have a community. Better yet, three, four, five hundred thousand, and now there's power. And so, what Jesus is saying is that when we love one another, that becomes a source of plural unity that the world sees and says, Whoa. And in other words, our unity, what binds us together, is this Christ like love for each other. And what you need to know is that this works. Peter, who was one of Jesus' most passionate and impetuous followers, would learn this powerfully because he didn't get along with a lot of people. (laughs) You've read the Bible. I mean, he was constantly fighting with the other disciples, and and he was at odds, obviously, with the Jewish leaders of his day and all this. And and at one point, toward the tail end of his life, he says this in his epistle. He says, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers over a multitude of sins. And it's true. Jesus-like unity works, or Jesus-like love works because it applies patience and empathy and care and understanding toward those around you that might be very different from you, that might have very different opinions, very different passions, a very different take on the world around you, but you know better, your unity with them is found in a person named Jesus. It's found in a book called the Bible and it's found in love for them that comes from your understanding and experience of Jesus. Over over the summers I was doing some study, I uh, ran across an article about Susan Rice. Uh, Some of you might remember who Susan Rice is. She was the ambassador to the United Nations from 2009 to 2013 under Barack Obama. And she was also his national security advisor from 2013 to 2017. And Susan Rice is very, very on the far left. She's very, very progressive, and she served well in that way in in the Obama administration. And you might also know, because this was very recent, that she was on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president. In fact, she was on the top three or four. Susan Rice. What this article is pointing out and what you might not have known is that Susan has a 23-year-old son named John David who is anything but on the left. Like her, he went to Stanford and when he went to Stanford, I kid you not, he became the president of the Stanford College Republicans. He became a strong supporter at Stanford of Donald Trump. In fact, he hosted an event called Make Stanford Great Again. So here you have that this national leader, Susan Rice, in the Obama administration and her son that she sent to a college where she thought he'd be safe from all of this Republican influence, Stanford in California becomes a Republican, the head of the Republicans and puts on an event promoting Donald Trump saying, make Stanford great. Again, I would not wanna be at their Thanksgiving dinners. How about you? (laughs) And in this article, they asked her, you know, what gives about your son? And I loved her answer. Listen to this. She says, I have a 23-year-old son whom I love dearly, whose politics are very, very different from my own. And then she says, and from the rest of our family. She says, my son and I will have some robust disagreements over matters of policy. And yet, at the end of the day, you know, I love him dearly, and he loves me. Every mother here today understands what Susan Rice is saying. Many of you men either should or do understand as well, I sure do, of having a child that disagrees so vehemently with something that you raise them to believe, or what have you, and yet your love for them, because love for a child is so deep and rich, goes so deep that you can still find unity in that love for them. Here's my point, if families can do that over something like politics, then what would be stopping the church from doing that over the really important things? Nothing breaks your pastor's heart more than when you and I bicker over our view of the coronavirus, when you and I bicker over politics, when you and I bicker over cultural issues going on out there. Don't get me wrong. They're important issues. I get it. I get it. And I have my own opinions on them, and they're generally right. I get it. We all feel strongly about certain things. Watch this. Your church even makes some decisions over our opinions on these things. That's why we have elders who pray and come together in unity. But at the end of the day, my only message to you today, and I'm on the verge of tears saying this because I just beg you guys to go with me on this. The future of our church depends on this. Is please don't let Satan tempt you to find your unity in those things. They're important and have your opinion But don't walk out that door over silly things like that. Don't walk out that door when we talk next week about some of our strategies moving forward. Yes, I'm preparing you for some change. Our unity is found in Jesus, and that hasn't changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our unity, amen, is found in this book. And you're not gonna find a more clear Bible teaching church, at least in this corner, (laughs) than this church. We have a rich history of teaching this book, and I love this book, and I understand what it says about you and me and our Savior. And our unity is found in our shared love for each other. Quick story, and then we'll wrap up here. This summer, it's going to shock you, I, I made a friend. <laughs> I, I was shocked too, because I don't make many friends. I, I tell you guys all the time that, you know, you want to have lunch with me or whatever, and it's an anticlimactic experience. And so I, I do well what I do up here, but I'm not an easy person to get along with. That's my wife. And, and I'm in Upper Michigan, and I'm doing my study and finishing my book. And, uh, and I've been there for a few summers. We go to the same place each summer. And, uh, and, and I've made a friend up there. Kim and I have, another couple. And uh, they're local in that community there. Uh, they're obviously Christians, and uh, we really love them. In fact, every time we go in now, we say, hey, we need to, to contact Matt and Lana and, and, and get with them. And, and what surprises me about it is that when you start to unpack this friendship, uh, he and I, again, like Tom, have very little in common. He runs an HVAC business and works all day with his hands, and I'm a pastor who works all day, basically, with my mind. He, he homeschools. His kids, and I didn't homeschool any of my kids. We did either the public school or the private school. He he lives in the country, and he built his own house. He literally built his own house, and it's a nice one. I I live in the suburbs, and I don't even clean my own pool. I mean, we just have a a very, very different lifestyle. He he goes to a really small church, because there's not a lot of big churches out there. And Anyways, he likes the small church. And and here I am, a, a very large church pastor And worse, like Schrader, he's not a car guy. I don't get that. You know, how can you be a man and not be a car guy? And so, you know, we just have very, very little in common. And yet I love being with this guy. And you say, why? Because he loves Jesus in a way that I'm so drawn to him. He loves people in a way that I'm drawn to him. He understands the Bible in a way that in which he majors in the majors and minors in the minors, and and I love his faith, and and there's a brokenness and a humility in his spirit and in his wife, Lana, in which Kim and I walk away from our times with them going, that was uplifting. We like being with them, even though we don't have all that much in common with them. And, And as I was coming away from my time away in the summer, I thought, that's the church. Some of you got offended at this, but I I joked a few years ago, but I really meant it as a compliment to you. I I said, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't hang out with most of you. And and I meant it as a compliment because, you know, before I was a Christian, I never went to church, and I never hung out with church people. I thought you all were weird. And and by the way, you you all judge me, the high heaven, right? I mean, you look at me and say, look at that decadent, snot-nosed kid, bound for hell. I get it. I was. But then Jesus came into my life and it changed everything. And now I look at Roger and I look at Richard and I look at Susan, I look at so many of you, Jeff, I, look, I, I miss you guys, Vera, Ed, Diane. I, and I go, but we are now one. But it's because of Jesus. I don't care if you like cars or not. I don't care at the end what your political persuasion is. I don't care if you share my views on these things. I don't even care if you like what the elders do with coronavirus. What I ask you to do is to love me Because I'm a believer in Jesus with you. And I'm part of the community of faith with you. And to realize where our unity is found. And again, I do know this as a pastor. If you and I can do that, Satan is bound. He will have no reign on what God wants to do through our church. But the converse is also true. If we insist on finding our unity in these silly things over here, as real as they might be, as important as they are, but silly for the sake of unity and fail to realize our unity is found in Jesus, in his word, and in our love for each other in community, then we're stopped already. But I believe better for you. We've done well over the last five months. Those of you watching online, we've done well. But let's continue on the straight and narrow, for on that road is life. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and for the teaching of Paul the apostle here and for the affirmation of Jesus when it comes to this idea of unity. And Father, I pray that as we each give thought and audit to our own lives and what we've been doing over the last few months to either foster unity or even sometimes, I have to confess this, tearing it down, God, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment. Speak to us by your spirit. And may, Lord, more than anything, as Ephesians says, may we seek the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, realizing where and how it is found. God, I pray you protect our church. Use us in this trying and difficult time to be salt and light in a culture that so desperately needs you and needs to find their salvation in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.